as opposed to saying women in power, that means that your power is coming from a system that has placed you in a position as opposed to women of power means it's coming from within you. You're listening to Dear Seekers. This is Sasha, and that was Sydney Alanash. She goes by Sid. If you're new here, welcome. Dear Seekers is a bi-weekly podcast which I seek out interesting women in the city, visit them at their home, and have a little chat in their living room. The idea is to share their stories, hardships, joy, and success so you can get nuggets of wisdom to apply to your life. Also, there is an editorial component on our website that offers a window into the lives of these intriguing women. For any journalist or reporter, when you are going to interview someone, you would dig everything you could, from the reference library to social media to Google. You almost became a stalker. This time, however, it's a very different story. Prior to interviewing Sid, I didn't know anything about her except listened, or rather, consumed her podcast called Research. Especially the last episode, I have revisited probably about ten times. Every time I went back to her podcast, I ended up picking up some new perspectives. As cheesy as it sounds, my gut and heart was taking me to her. I got a strong feeling this smart woman is full of wisdom. So, without knowing who she is, what she does for a living, what her story is, I dropped a DM on her Instagram, and here we are sitting in her living room chatting. Yeah, I'm ready. Hello. I don't know even know where to start. I'm okay. gonna get my notebook ready. Okay, just in case、it. I'm going blank. Yeah. I just feel like you are a woman who has so much different perspective, and then this conversation probably can like really open up my horizon、wow. in a way. Yeah, I just want to address that because I didn't know you at all, but I just feel like there is something there I need to pursue. Yeah. So the universe is taking me here. My intuition was so right, though. This conversation expanded my horizon, and I had so many aha moments enlightened by Sid. Not even joking. We tackled the relationship between women and power. What does it mean to be a powerful woman? We talk about her rape trauma that has shaped her perspectives towards her body, sexuality, and beyond. And we also chat about the art of being present and how to negotiate between being present and looking forward. It's something that I have been struggling with. This conversation is seriously full of nutrition. Even during our rapid fire, we got deeper. She shared her takes on why for a city like Toronto, it could be a curse and blessing to not have an identity. I've been working at Vice for the past year and a half within a department called Virtue, which is essentially an advertising agency, and I've been doing a lot of work over the past year and a half as well within Vice Canada's DNI, so Diversity and Inclusion Committee. I'm the co-chair of it, and through that kind of work, I've really developed, like, I guess, really strong relationships with different executives and like. More senior kind of leaders within the company, and just kind of showed them my interest and passion for diversity, inclusion, for equity, and for really changing the culture within Vice. I 
spent a lot of time thinking about oppression and discrimination Mm -hmm. in a variety of different contexts. I spent a lot of time thinking about race and about gender and about like socioeconomic classes and all the different systems that exist in our world to push people down. Um, And the the flip side of those systems, the when who gets raised up, right? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that and personally affected by it. Everybody is, right? And I think that because I am so aware of those things and care so much about changing them and just feel so angry about them all the time, like about racism, about sexism, about like systematic forms of oppression. Basically, I like, I just care about helping people and making people shine. Mm -hmm. And I think I can do that with advice. just talking about you dealing with this on a daily basis sometimes even get like angry or frustrated about these issues growing up was it something that you always care about or something that in your dna you would say or it was more kind of like brought on to you when you entering adulthood uh i definitely got way more like radicalized in university just read a lot of kind of theorists and like understood sociology and kind of anthropology a little bit better to see how things manifest at a sociological level i think growing up i really only understood it like through my own personal lens um and like i'm mixed race my dad's black my mom's white so my i'm a quarter black um because my dad's mixed and growing up like I don't think I was really aware of the language and the vocabulary in which to express how I was feeling, but yeah, you feel a little bit weird. Like you just feel like, I felt like I didn't fit into one group, I didn't fit into another group, I was just kind of floating in the middle. Like my dad's also in a weird way adopted. And so his understanding of his cultural background is also really weird. And so I just kind of felt placeless a lot of the time and kind of felt like I didn't really fit in ever. And I feel like that's like a common thing that people who are mixed race feel. Um, And to me, that was just like my personal lens growing up. And then when I started reading and really learning a lot more about um, like the systems that exist in our world, then I was able to kind of contextualize my personal experience within like, oh, this is happening to so many different types of people in so many different ways because of these boxes that people are made to fit in. Mm -hmm. And then I became much more aware of like, okay, like, yes, this is my personal experience, but like, to me, the macro level is much more interesting. Like, I don't want to do this work at Vice or wherever else I go in the future. For me, like, it's not, that's not why I'm doing it. Like, I'm recognizing the amount of privilege I have and I see it as my responsibility to take like my like born privilege and the academic experience that I have the skill set that I have combine all those things together and make whatever happens next advice just better for the people coming up right like everyone after me even people that are there right now that don't have the same access that I have I want to make it better for them Mm -hmm. yeah Wow, I don't even know what to say. I'm getting so deep already. <laughs> Dive right in. Diving right in. Yeah. That's so great. Growing up, I didn't feel like you fit in this group or that group. And to see more and more people actually feel the same way, that kind of make you feel like you belong somewhere. Was um, that the case? 
it didn't make me feel that I belonged somewhere, but it did make me feel like I was not the only one who felt this way. Mm-hmm. Like they were really like rubbing up against like having a feeling, a sense of friction against like what society is telling you to be. I'm definitely not the only person to feel like they don't fit in, in whatever way. Like for me, a lot around race and like gender expression, I would say, but then for so many other different people, so many different reasons. Right. But I think the more that I learned while I was in school and just growing up and meeting more different types of people and moving to Toronto and being exposed to different communities that didn't really exist or like weren't visible in Ajax where I grew up, that just showed me that this feeling of tension and this feeling of being really pushed down and oppressed and compressed basically into a smaller version of yourself is something that so many people feel. And I think that's a little bit reassuring because you're like, fuck, this is why I'm so stressed. That's why you're so stressed. Amazing. Let's be stressed (laughs) together, you know, like, so it is just like, I don't know, commiserating together, Mm -hmm. but then also learning strategies from each other too. So like one of my, my closest girlfriends, Alex, she's mixed as well. And we talk a lot about racial identity in the, like she, I look white passing to most people and she looks black to everybody basically. Mm-hmm. And so we talk a lot about the expectations that are put on ourselves in order to fit into what people define as those races. So right. if people see me as white, they're going to expect me to like certain types of things and do certain types of things, move in certain ways, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing for her, right? And obviously people are way more complex and way more intersectional than that. And that's why people feel that tension against those boxes and those expectations in society is because you're more than just what you look like, yeah. right? And so it's nice to meet people and enter spaces and learn about how other people have dealt with those problems and how we collectively, as people who want to change things, can deal with those problems. And it's been learning from like the communities that I've met in Toronto, from the amazing different like activists that exist here, reading a lot, a lot that I'm learning and like developing kind of like an arsenal of knowledge that I can use at a bigger level. Um, that I can hopefully employ like in my work advice and beyond, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. By recognizing her privilege, gaining strength from that, Sid feels that she has earned a voice and responsibility to inspire and empower others. That kind of leads to one of the biggest questions I have for you today, or the topic I want to tackle with you today, is also from your latest episode in your podcast research, which, by the way, everybody should listen to. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, <a plug. laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. So let's dive into women and power. Yeah. What's your definition of women with power? Um, That episode is really interesting. The concept women of power was brought to me by my friend Aisha. And she was like, yeah, instead of saying women in power, say women of power, because it kind of flips your expectation and your understanding of what makes a powerful woman. Like I think in the capitalist, like patriarchal society that we exist in, women are only powerful when they are in mainly professional positions of power or like Mm -hmm. what is defined as successful positions within like a capitalist framework. So like generally just like being really successful and having a lot of capital, right? Like having a lot of money or being like powerful or a leader within a company. And then, and women are only seen as powerful when they're in those positions. And that's really limiting because a lot of women don't have access to that, don't want that, will never have that. 
but those women can still be powerful. And so taking that concept and putting it in contrast to men, it's like men, regardless if they're a fucking barista, if they're a student, if they're a CEO, they're all powerful. Men are just inherently powerful in Mm -hmm. society because we live in a patriarchal society that's made to make men powerful and make women not powerful. Mm -hmm. So flipping the statement from women in power to women of power, I feel for me and for Aisha, we are saying it reorients where our power is coming from. So as opposed to saying women in power, that means that your power is coming from a system that has placed you in a position as opposed to women of power means it's coming from within you. Right which I think is a beautiful thing. And I think that's actually the true manifestation of like Mm -hmm. powerful women is like, it comes from inside you. And that sounds like a little bit hippy dippy, but like, I really do feel like that's true. For example, like you walk into a party, you walk into an event and like, there's some women that just like grab your attention. You're like fixated on, you want to meet them. You want to know them. You want to be around them. Like when they talk, you're just like, mm-hmm. holy fuck. Like, you know, all like <laughs> just the way they carry themselves. Like the way That's they me move. right now. Towards you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very sweet. But it's that type of thing where it's like women, especially like, or anyone like femme presenting. It's just like, a thing inside of you. It's like an energy inside of you. Like I'm making this movement right now. Like, you see, <laughs> You're just, like grabbing the inside yeah. of my guts. Yeah. Like it's just like, it's this thing inside of you. A lot and of I, body language is going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like a thing inside of you. And I think men can have it too, but men also have the benefit of all of society working for them, right? Mm-hmm. Like working in their favor. And they're they're lifted there automatically. Yeah. Yeah. They're assumed to have power Mm -hmm. automatically and women are assumed to not have power. And I think like by if like all women can see that it's like within themselves, I feel like that's one of the steps. Right. You know, the one of the steps to all women collectively getting more power. Right. Yeah. The reason this topic really resonated with me was because back in the time I was really overwhelmed by the idea of like girl boss, boss ladies mm-hmm. with that concept was flowing around everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then I, I feel empowered away at the same time feel overwhelmed because I didn't feel like I belong anywhere in mm-hmm. those category. I don't feel like I'm boss lady or lady boss yeah. or girl boss yeah, in that yeah. matter. I couldn't articulate. It doesn't resonate with me because as you just talk about, also Aisha in your episode also talk about, is that when you say powerful women, almost sound like this woman is dominate over someone or something. Mm-hmm. The definition of woman in power or the girl boss is almost like this woman having heels or blazer, mm-hmm. um, have like millions of uh, capital backed up, yeah. a successful business owner or something like that. But women in power that almost come or empowered mm-hmm. that almost come from within. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, once you guys had that topic, I was like, oh my God, I needed it so badly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I needed it. I think Aisha needed it too. Like I've got a lot of great feedback from different women in my mm-hmm. life who have listened to that episode and felt like it resonated. Honestly, I think it's important to just like hear women talk about power and hear women figure out ways that they are embodying that power and where they find their strength from. I think it's just important to hear all the different ways, right? Because like you're saying, it's like girl boss, that kind of stuff, I think is still a viable avenue for women to find empowerment, of course, but I don't think it's the only one. And I think just by hearing different ways that women like really manifest their own strength 
it opens up the avenues and it makes you feel like, okay, no, I too am powerful, even if I'm not a CEO, because I don't want that, but I'm powerful because I'm an artist. I'm powerful because I'm me, whatever, you know, just opening up the avenues, Mm -hmm. you know, making it more broad, not making it so narrow. Because by saying that women are only powerful when they're CEOs or when they're business leaders, it's just like, it's so narrow. And it's really just like translating what men empower is, you know, like it's, it's making it so limited And it's really making it inaccessible to a wide majority of the population, you know? Let's go back to when you were little. (laughs) Okay. Do you still remember what kind of women you were looking up to? Hmm. Definitely my mom. I don't think she really knows that, though. We have a weird relationship. It's getting better. But it was very strenuous, especially when I was younger. It was really strenuous. Um, my parents, so, my is that parents, possible to share? Yeah, my parents divorced when I was really young. My mom was a single mom. Like She's dealing with her own like mental health challenges. She went back to school. She found a whole new career. She was raising three kids all by herself. Like That's hard. Those things are all really hard. And there was a lot of stress on our relationship during that time, especially during high school. And so I think for me, during high school, it was just kind of like your pivotal, like, you know, like hormone years. You're like, who am I? What am I doing? Um, That's me even to this day. (laughs) I mean, I definitely still have those moments, but I feel like high school is the first time that you really feel that, you know, slaps you in the face. And to me during that time, like home wasn't really a place that I looked to for comfort or for guidance, just based on like, there was a lot of different stressors in that environment and like a lot of tension and relationships with like my family at that time. And so I actually looked to like, every single other avenue like I played every sport in high school I was on every single extracurricular I did all the things like I had really good relationships with my teachers like most of my teachers and I think that was maybe not consciously at that time but looking back that was definitely a way of me building a support network for myself in building something that like people see now like a chosen family like I know all my different coaches were super instrumental in my like understanding of myself and my understanding of my own power of my own strength um like I remember like my rugby coach in high school was like the woman who taught me a firm handshake you know like it's like there's small moments Mm -hmm. like there's a bunch of small moments just seeing strong women owning their space in whatever avenue they're in which says a lot yeah handshake yeah it does it does and again like that it's like a firm handshake is important but it's important because men have deemed it important so like there's two sides to it but like it still is just it's just one example of like how she exhibited strength to me. And she was super intelligent and like really strong and athletic and just like opinionated and like I am all of those things, you know? So I think like definitely when I was younger I was looking to every single avenue. Like I definitely got a lot of my strength from my mom, but I also like learned different ways of expressing it through teachers, through coaches, through mm-hmm. directors, through so many different things. What kind of other foundations have your parents or other people you're looking up to kind of lay out there for you when you were little? And now you're looking back, kind of make sense and then shape who you are today. Um, I think when I was in high school, like that was really kind of the instrumental foundation. Like I was in the gifted program, like growing up through elementary school. So like that probably helped, but I don't really remember it that much. Like I just remember that like everyone in my class was like super engaged and like really smart. And we just like talked a lot basically. Mm -hmm. But then in high school, like I think through doing all these extracurriculars, like that's where the foundation was really laid. Like I did drama, I did musical theater, I did improv, I did track and field, cross country, dragon boat, soccer, rugby. Oh my God. 
all the, the things. Is on I think and there's on. even more than that that I can't even remember. But I did every single extracurricular. I think in the beginning it was like, let me find my people, which probably connects back to like my own feeling of like displacement when I was younger. But it was also like I realized around like what grade, like nine to like maybe grade ten or eleven. I realized the more extracurriculars you do, the less you have to be in class. In class With another reason? Yeah, this like when I got to grade eleven, grade twelve, I was like, "This is dumb. Like, I don't need to be here anymore. <laughs> this is boring." So, the more extracurriculars you do, the less you have to be in class. And like, no teacher is gonna get mad at you for missing a bunch of class if you're like an eighty student and you're on every single extracurricular. Yeah, I think those things definitely taught me a lot. Like skill wise, it's like aggression and confidence, like being really sure in your opinions. But then also, like, being able to, like, ad-lib and, like, improv and, like, really change really quickly, be very adaptable. Mm -hmm. Um, Public speaking, I think, is, like, my biggest strength. Not my biggest, but, like, one of my biggest strengths and is definitely super beneficial in the role that I'm in and the role I'm moving into. I love public speaking and, like, quite good at it, too. And I think that definitely came from so much musical theater. I did Mm -hmm. musical theater. I did improv. I did all of those things. Um, Yeah. I think all those things, like, just, like, it's all the studies that tell you about, like, girls in sport and girls in whatever type of activities, like, growing up. It's, like, all those things build your character for when you're older, for when you're a grown woman. Um, Yeah. Often, the things we wear, the hairstyle we choose, are the extension of our internal feelings, beliefs, and perspectives. Sid has her head shaved. So I was curious about what led to this bold decision. Basically, I was feeling like kind of in university and like the end of high school, but definitely in university, like living in a new city and just like meeting a lot of new people, um, working a bunch of different jobs. You're, you're just like, you're understanding yourself and you're growing into yourself. And like, I had this body in university and at the end of high school, like big boobs, like bigger person, tall, and like big eyes, big lips, like, and it had big wavy hair. And this is all, I th- and it's not all, but I think I would say it's half and half like an internal insecurity, but then also like an external kind of societal pressure where like, I was just getting attention that I did not want. Mm-hmm. Like I was just getting people really kind of diminishing my self diminishing my intelligence, my capacity. I felt like people didn't see me as someone with ideas. They just saw me as someone with a body. And that to me really limited my own sense of self in addition to what I could accomplish in the world. So it was kind of this feedback loop where it's like people told me I was just a body and like treated me like I was just a sexual object. And then I internalized that being Mm -hmm. like, oh, maybe I'm actually not creative. Like maybe I'm actually not a leader. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm actually not capable of doing these things that I thought I was. And it was just kind of this vicious cycle where I felt really unbalanced. Like I felt like, like I definitely identify as a woman, but I think like the definition of what society has put on me in terms of femininity and how to express that womanhood, I was like rebelling against a lot in the beginning and middle of university and the end, I guess all of university, really rebelling against it because it didn't feel like it fit for me. And I didn't really know how to express myself, like, the way that I actually felt inside. And and it just, like, reached a breaking point. Like, I think one summer, like, I went to Europe and met a bunch of friends there and really, like, spent a lot of time thinking about myself and, like, working on myself. And then 
came back that summer and I was like working this job that I did not like. And I was just like really just kind of like moody and like mad. (laughs) And I was like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to cut my hair whatever. Like, it's just that feeling like, I don't know if other women get this, but I would assume that they do where it's like, or like men too. Like you feel like when you feel an internal change, you want to change something externally as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Like to kind of match that tension or that like tumultuous feeling you have inside so like some people like move or they throw out a bunch of shit or they clear out their closet or they shave their head or they get a tattoo or they do some mm-hmm. you know like you do something to kind of express that inner turmoil you're feeling and so I cut my hair I like cut it I would always kind of cut my hair myself regularly like I would just like take scissors like kitchen scissors and just mm-hmm. like cut it a few inches whatever and I was out with a friend and I was like, I think I want to cut my hair. She's like, you should do it. And I like, <laughs> went home and I think like it was during the summer. So my, I had two roommates during university and they were gone every summer because they didn't live in Toronto. And so I was by myself, like maybe a little bit tipsy. And I cut my hair to like maybe from shoulder height to like my jaw, mm-hmm. I think, like in and around there. And I was like, okay, this is fine. Whatever. I can do this. And I had that for a little bit. And then. I cut it again. Like, I did the same thing. I was out with the same girlfriend. I was like, I think I want to shave my head. She's like, do it. No. I was like, okay. And then when I would cut my hair when I was long, like, shoulder head, I would put it in, like, two pigtails and then just, like, cut off the pigtails mm-hmm. or put it in a ponytail and cut off the ponytail. So I was like, okay, same strategy. But then... So it was a progress. It wasn't, it was like, progress. one night you just, like, pro- shaved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was progress. It was pro- I should have just shaved it from the beginning because so I would have saved myself a lot of time. But... It was essentially this, like, it was, I was at, like, a bob, and then I put the hair, granted, I was drunk. <laughs> I was, maybe as tipsy, maybe I wasn't fully drunk, but I put the hair in a ponytail on the top of my head. Yeah. And then I cut off the ponytail, but I didn't think about what happened to the hair closest to the ponytail. And so there's a bunch of hair sticking up straight on the top right. of my head, like an alfalfa, you know? And I was that like, oh, cool haircut. No, it was not a cool haircut. Don't humor me. Like, it was not, it was not cool. Um, and so I just like kept cutting, kept cutting. I'm like, fuck, I can fix this, whatever. And then it was like four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I need to go to bed and just like texted a friend that worked at a barbershop. And I was like, girl, I need it. She works at a, like at a barber. And I was like, I need a haircut tomorrow. She's like, what have you done? <laughs> I was like, just bring me in. <laughs> uh, and then like the barber was just like, he sat me down the chair. I was like, I really like how the front looks, but I can't see the back. And then he's like, oh, you butchered it. It's just like basically gave me like a mushroom cut. And I was like, just make me look like Leo in the 90s. Like, you know, DiCaprio in the 90s. Yeah. And so I had that long on top and then shaved on the sides. And then I just remember, like, looking in the mirror and just being, like, like, just pushing it to the sides and realizing within myself, I'm like, you're only keeping this hair because you think that it means something to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Like you were only keeping this because for some reason, this is what femininity is in your head, you know, is having long hair, you know, even though it wasn't even long at that point. Um, And I'm like, fuck this. Like I can do this. Like I can shave my head and I can still be a woman. I can shave my head and still be feminine. I can shave my head and still be myself. I can look any way that I want and still be who Mm -hmm. I am inside. And to me, it was just like, it's maybe seems like a minor thing to other people. But to me, it was just kind of like, finally figuring out a way to express how I felt internally and like the confidence and the sexuality and the femininity um, that I felt internally expressing in the way that felt true to me. Mm-hmm. And now it's just too much of a bitch to grow back. So I can't, no, I'm kidding. I don't want to grow back. So in the interview, you're talking about you are a progress oriented person. Mm-hmm. So you constantly kind of negotiate the concept of like, I want to be there, but also I want to enjoy present as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. 
but now you kind of already achieved what you have always wanted. Are you still negotiating that with yourself? Are you still struggling finding that balance? Yeah, I think even though I'm being given the opportunity to do this or created the opportunity or whatever to do this type of role in, in Vice, so it does feel like I like made it to the top of a mountain. But then now that I'm at a higher point, I can see all these other mountains that I also am going mm-hmm. to climb or have to climb. And so it never feels like it's done. And I think in terms of being a progress-oriented person, I see, I have, I think in, in a healthy amount of growth, I've seen progress and productivity as something that I feel compelled to do all the time, but I've translated it into more areas than just work in my life. I think especially during university, I was like, just do all the work all the time. And then just kind of realize that I'm better at doing my work and I'm a better person when I have a more balanced life. So I see like productivity and progress in like my emotional self and my spiritual self and my physical self and my professional self, like in all these different areas and facets of my life. So I try and channel it in that way. So in that sense, like there's endless amounts of work to do mm-hmm. and I'm very into doing work. So it's, I kind of see it. I see it more spread out rather than just only in like my actual job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you read a lot. So is that one of the form for you to just be? Yeah. Reading. I read a lot, a lot, mainly because I don't like looking at screens. Like it hurts my eyes. I read a lot of nonfiction. And I think for me, that's about work and about growth. It's a little bit of an escape, but not really like I read nonfiction because I like want to learn things. And I think up until recently, I was like, nonfiction is the only place where you learn. And then I started reading a little bit of fiction. And I was like, oh, you learn things here too. Didn't know that. I am working on being present. And books bring me closer to that, closer to that than a phone does. But I'm working on figuring out ways to feel that presence and that gratitude in the moment. Like I'm trying to like be more kind of introspective and like meditative and mindful, I guess, Mm -hmm. is the word that people use. I'm trying to be more mindful without the need for an object to facilitate that for me or Mm -hmm. anything like that. I spend a lot of time alone, but then I also spend a lot of time alone reading and alone listening to podcasts and alone looking at my phone or alone walking places, whatever. So like yoga, for example, it's like after I come into yoga, I'm chilling. Like I'm like yoga stoned in quotations. Um... And then it's easier for me to be silent, you know? So I think like I'm learning how to deal with that. Yeah, it actually reminded me something I want to talk about, but I forgot. Mm-hmm. Is um, you dance a lot. I do dance a lot. What does dancing do to you? Or, you know, the movement, the music. What do you find yourself when you're actually dancing? Dance and yoga is something that I really started doing in January of last year. And... As I kind of said, I grew up playing a ton of different sports, like really competitively, like really intense. And I know that doing physical activity is crucial for my mental health. Like I know this for sure. But I think the way that I was viewing it up until recently was like, when you work out really, really hard, you have to turn your brain off because you literally cannot focus on anything else but your physical body and getting your physical body through whatever challenge it is you're putting it through. And that creates a sense of calm, right? Because when you're not running through a million thoughts in your head, 
then it's fine. You know, you're not cycling through like all of these concerns and worries and anxieties. You're just focusing on your body moving through this thing and like really in kind of an animalistic way. You're kind mm-hmm. of, you're kind of focused on this goal as a way of turning off your brain. And then in January of last year, I actually found out I had a 15 centimeter cyst attached to one of my ovaries, which is very large. That's like a baseball or like a grapefruit. It's the equivalent of being five months pregnant, as the doctors told me. And I didn't even know it was there. I didn't even know it was there. Yeah, it ruptured. And it was like the most intense pain I've ever felt in my entire life. It woke me up at like 430 in the morning. So I found I had the cyst and I didn't even know it was there. Like, in retrospect, I can identify a few moments where I was like, what is this? Oh, it doesn't matter. Keep going. Because I had this cyst and it ruptured and it's so big. Like, I was like, fuck, I don't want it to rupture again. So I, I can't have people hitting me in the stomach through boxing, right? Like, I can't do that. That's too risky. So I was like, okay, let's do low intensity exercise. And I actually realized that part of the problem and part of like this cyst getting to 15 centimeters, like cysts are very common. Like three out of four women will have a cyst mm-hmm. in their lifetime. You know, like most people's will not be that large though. Really? I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Like you probably have one. It, oh, it probably, it's like they don't, some of them will never grow big enough to operate on and not grow big enough to be a problem. But like most women will get them. Um, okay. There's a lot of room for error because like you shed like in your reproductive system right. because like every time you have a period, like your body regrows and like right. there's just so much room for error in that process that most people will get a cyst. Oh, wow. Um, sorry, not Thank to alarm you. Help lesson. Yeah, not to alarm you, but it's just a thing that most people will get. And I kind of realized that I was like, fuck, like this thing got to be 15 centimeters and I didn't even know it was there. That means I'm not paying attention to my body. That means I'm not in tune and aware of what is going on inside of me. And that's a big problem. Not only from like a health and medicine standpoint, but just from like an awareness and like a confidence and a comfortability with my own body. To also add a layer of backstory, um, I was raped when I was 18. And I think I didn't deal with that for a long time, for like probably five or six years. I just didn't deal with it. Um, I didn't know how, I I didn't know what to do at all. After this traumatic event, like most victims, she was almost paralyzed by it. She didn't know how to cope, how to share, or even how to feel. What ended up being the catalyst for her healing was sharing, starting with herself. What was kind of crucial was telling my own story to myself, which I had never really done before. I would never really given myself the permission to do. I think for a long time, like most people I've learned now, I didn't know then, I didn't know for a long time, that most people feel like what they experienced wasn't rape. That it was just bad sex, Mm -hmm. or it was just a mistake, or it was just an awkward night, or it was just a whatever. It was their fault, whatever it was, right? There's so many stories that society will like tell you, right, if you don't actually really interrogate it for yourself. And... For me, it was, it was actually super important to write it down and write down play by play exactly what happened. And what prompted that, I think, was I remember having a conversation a couple summers ago when I first moved into this apartment, actually, on the night of I had a housewarming party and I had a conversation with a friend and I just said it to him and I had never said it to anybody and I just said it to him. I was like, I was raped when I was 18. Um... And I don't think he really knew what to say. I think he was supportive, but he didn't really know what to say. And then I just started telling people. So I was like, I just need to say this. 
Um, and no one really knew how to respond. I didn't know what I wanted as a response. No one really knew what was going on. And then my friend Nana, who lives in Copenhagen, her and two other women, Julie and Clemence, run a organization, a collective called Volt Women. Volt Women has a little logo that's a little lightning bolt, and I had it tattooed on my hip. And it is a collective devoted to celebrating women in sport uh, and empowering women in sport. They were publishing a series of like different articles written by different women in their community about their relationship to their body. Mm-hmm. And Nana had asked me to write an article for it. And I was like, to be honest, I can't talk about my relationship to my body in the context of sport if I don't first talk about my relationship to my body in relationship to my experience with rape and then how my sexuality has been impacted and then how my physical self has been impacted and how my sense of myself has been impacted. Like I needed to start there. And so I wrote this article for them. And it was the first time, like, while I think the previous summer I had told my friend, like at that housewarming party, I had told some people, I hadn't really told myself the whole story. And so I just wrote up this article. It was just like stream of consciousness, like, okay, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened, this happened, and then this is what happened afterwards and whatever. And like, really just told myself the whole story. And I'm like, yeah, this is, that's what rape is. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And like, I think by being surrounded by other women that also had the confidence and had the security um, and the ability to talk about their experiences with rape, I realized that like the definition of what that is is actually way broader than what media projects. Mm -hmm. I think my understanding at least growing up was that rape was always this like in Hollywood, it's depicted as like one type of thing like always super crazy very very violent probably bloody like in horror movies and shit and like it's super like violent and huge like just like this massive thing Mm -hmm. and what I have learned and what other women's stories have taught me and what my own story has taught me is that it actually can be really small it can be really small and tragic and you can go for years and not even know. And I knew there was something wrong. I knew that I had a weird, distorted view of myself and also like intimacy, sex, public spaces, closeness, being drunk. I had a weird kind of like trigger with all those things and I didn't really know why. And the more I read and once I admitted it to myself, then I started to piece together why I had all these things. Like why, if any anyone who knows me and goes out with me, like once I'm drunk, like once I'm past tipsy, I go home. Like I'll just ghost. Like I won't tell anyone, I'll just leave. And that's because I was really, really, really wasted when, when that guy raped me. And like, I have a weird thing with like, sex has been really weird for me for a really long time. Like masturbating like intimacy in general like public closeness like Mm -hmm. crowds also really freak me out there's just a lot of things connected to that experience and i'm like oh this is why and it's a little bit heartbreaking to make all those connections and to understand that those problems will probably And those kind of like instincts Mm -hmm. will probably be with me for the rest of my life. But I think it's also, it was also really empowering for me to actually speak my truth and talk to other people about it Mm -hmm. and really kind of acknowledge it 
you know, mm-hmm. acknowledge it and, and start to like deconstruct how it's impacted me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the power of you sharing, it's, it's really hard to even measure it because I feel like the society you talk about has packaged this idea of rape to so extreme that it's not even resonate with mm-hmm. or reflected what it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, girls, guys even, have this idea of like that definitely not it's mm-hmm. not something that they experience yeah they start blaming themselves they start thinking no that wasn't it mm-hmm. so come to which point did you kind of put all these puzzles together and realize that was rape your right has been violated yeah i don't know if there was like i can't pinpoint like a single moment um I think one thing that stands out in my mind is this woman within like Toronto's arts community, Alexia Broad Anderson. She did like this really beautiful, powerful, heartbreaking, tragic, but like fiery and like loud, like poem performance, like spoken word piece where she was talking about her experience with rape. And then, and I think she also told me, was she told me this story about earlier before she made that piece, she was listening to someone else at a performance talk about their experience and that she really identified with it, but she didn't think that she had been raped, but she felt a connection to what this person was saying. And the same thing happened to me with her work. And I was like, that's how I feel too. Like, why do I feel this way? Like, that wasn't rape. I was just drunk. Like, that wasn't rape. That was just weird. Like, that was... And I was like, no, like, I was pushing him off me. You know, like, I was... I Like, I remember all of those things, right? Like, and... I think it's just like a series of different kind of pieces coming into place and like learning a vocabulary to talk about it too was really important because I didn't have that. I was 18. Like I didn't have that at all. And I think like learning again from like my community, learning from the different circles that I'm a part of from the different women that I've met in my life and like learning a lot through school too. And just like through reading a ton, like I like would look up like articles being like, how, how do you feel after a rape and how do you feel after sexual assault? How do you feel after these things? And then found like Buzzfeed lists where it's like 100 things that will never be the same. 100 stories of people's experience after this, whatever. And just like hearing the different like kind of triggers that people have after their experience with sexual assault. I was like, Oh fuck, I feel this way too. You know? So I mean, to bring it back to like our earlier conversation, it was, it's not necessarily making me feel like I belong. Like, again, back to when we were talking about kind of race and identity. Mm -hmm. But it is a sense of solidarity, like, oh, you feel this too. It's very helpful in my own self-growth to understand why I feel things. Acknowledge that maybe I will always feel them forever, but at least have a logical explanation for why I feel these things, why I do these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, um... I think that's it. Okay. <laughs> I was going to talk about something else, but I think yeah. we can end on that. Okay. And, but before we end, okay. I have some rapid fire questions. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. All right. How rapid are they? As rapid as you can be. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Go. Go. Um, maybe give us three wisdom and two or three pieces of advice. Yeah. Oh, I hope I have wisdom. The first is trust your gut. Trust your gut. Uh, someone told me, a woman that I work with, told me that, um, and I had never heard 
someone say that in a professional context before. I thought that trusting your gut was like more emotional or like physical or spiritual or something. But she told me in a professional context, like about a business decision I was making. She was like, trust your gut. I was like, oh yeah, I have the intuition for a reason and it's right. Hard work doesn't go nowhere. My friend Faya told me that. It doesn't always go where you expect it to go, but it will go somewhere. You're always working towards something. You're all like, it will take you in a direction. It's not going to take you away from it. Um, there, I'll do those two. Cause I don't know if you, I actually want to answer another question. Okay. After you talk about trust your gut or yeah. the intuition. Yeah. But sometimes your gut is not very clear. At yeah. least to me, sometimes I feel like it takes practice. Mm-hmm. So when you have a voice or a feeling that's telling you something, but you have another feeling telling you at the same time, so how would you identify which one is coming from gut, which one is from coming from ego or insecurity or anything else? Yeah. So that's actually like you brought up ego, and I think that's kind of like the key differentiator for me. Um, one of my close girlfriends, Alex. Uh, recently converted to Islam and a lot of kind of the practices that she's been learning and like the spiritual kind of journey that she's been on has been centered around the ego and really like differentiating when you're acting from the ego and when you're not. Um, and to me that really resonates. And so we've like a lot of our conversations are centered around like, Oh, that's just your ego talking. Like, don't listen to it. Like, it's just your ego. Mm -hmm. Like know that, know that short term fame driven, monetary success is your ego talking things to do with like protecting your persona, protecting your public image. Yeah. Like fame, like people liking you in like a adoring way rather than like a genuine connection way. All of those things are centered around your ego. Mm -hmm. Like all of those things are like short term wins that are very like gratifying, but not fulfilling, you know, in, in the long game that is harder and that society doesn't really fuck with that won't get you like cool editorials and won't get you like great sexy articles written about you like all that kind of shit like all that stuff that's like fame driven like the long game won't necessarily get you those things but you'll be more fulfilled and just kind of try to learn and really take a step back in those moments where you're feeling like an instinct be like, is this my ego talking? Is this out of self-preservation in a in an ego-driven way? Or is this actually like the right move to be making? And the more that you kind of connect with that type of narrative and that type of way of thinking, the more clear it'll become. This is gold. Oh my God. <laughs> this is so good. Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> this is so good. Um, I hope everybody's listening because oh, this is so, so good. I hope so I'm too. I'm so excited. Okay, good. I have to listen to this 10 times now. <laughs> <laughs> what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Oh. Well, maybe you're still learning. Yeah, I think probably still learning. Um, like, I say this to my girlfriends all the time, and I think it's like a hard pill to swallow that, like, no one cares about you as much as you care about you. And so when you're thinking that someone's doing something maliciously towards you to like spite you, they're probably not. They're probably thinking about themselves, right? They're probably doing it for themselves. And that plays out. It's sad. It's sad, but <laughs> it's real, right? Yeah. It's like no one cares about you as much as you. So like if you think that girl is saying some shit about you like or saying something and she means it's about you or she is spiting you in some way or like 
doesn't want to come to your thing because of what, I mean, you know, like, or if you think like that guy isn't texting you back because of what, 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 like, it's not about you. It's about them. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. And like, understand that like, no one is as much as a priority to you as you are. Like no, no one, yeah, just no one cares about you as much as you do. And like that plays out in like a professional context where I'm like, this person's fucking with my ideas and they're ruining everything I'm working for. And like my manager, Peter will be like, no, they're probably just trying to do things in the best way that they know how, you know, they're probably have a little bit of empathy, you know? And I think that I am a very empathetic person, but I think I also just get really frustrated So that is like a continuous journey. And I think that's been helpful to me. It's just like really putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understanding that they have completely different goals, perspectives, aims, Mm -hmm. missions, you know, than you, right? Yeah. 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 Which city is overrated? Overrated? Oh, I don't know. I haven't been to enough cities to call a city overrated. I think like different cities have complexities to them and like they have amazing things, but then they have this underbelly of evil that like a lot of people don't consider. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I've been to enough cities to call any city overrated yet. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, to be determined. To be determined. Yeah. I think like, I don't think any individual city is overrated, but I think like the unfiltered, unadulterated praise of cities, I think that is overrated. Which one then? Of all cities, because I think there's good and bad in all cities. So, like, for example, like, Copenhagen. I have, like, a couple dear friends that live in Copenhagen, and I think it's a really beautiful city. I think there's something amazing about Scandinavian countries where you feel like the whole city from top to bottom, like, the way that people dress, the politics, the urban design, all of those things is made by the same person. Um, And that creates this feeling of cohesion, of safety, Mm -hmm. of, like, cleanliness almost. And, like, a lot of those Scandinavian countries are frequently voted, like, the happiest in the world. Right. Or the happiest cities in the world are in Scandinavian right. countries. That's a beautiful thing. There's a, a lot of amazing furniture, a lot of amazing fashion design that comes out of those countries. A lot of amazing brains and thinkers come out of those countries. But the flip side of that is that it's a homogenous society. Mm-hmm. There's people of other backgrounds there, but they don't get accepted to the same extent. Um, And so it is really easy, I feel like, to have a society, have a city that is deemed very happy when you have the majority of the population raised with the same definitions of what happy is, of what successful is, of what beautiful Mm -hmm. is. Um, When you have a society that is largely the same, Mm -hmm. it's easy to produce iconic furniture that you know comes out of that country. You know, it's very clear versus like, what does Canadian design look like? No one knows. Because there's so many different people that live here Mm -hmm. that we could never essentialize it into one thing. So it's like the flip side, right? That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like Canada doesn't have identity, almost like a blessing and a curse at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Where it's all about that way. Yeah. I knew this was going to open my horizon. Yeah. 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 And like, I don't know, there's different cities like Portland, for example, like. I mean, this has happened in every city everywhere, but like the gentrification and the way that Portland's urban design has like pushed out black populations mm-hmm. um, is like super fucked. And like people don't really acknowledge that when they go to Portland, you know, like Vancouver similarly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Toronto similarly. So it's like there's amazing things, but there's also awful things in city. And so I think like the unadulterated love of cities without the understanding of their history, mm-hmm. I think that's overrated. Wow. Which city is underrated? I guess uh, we kind of answer that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think, like, Toronto's a little bit underrated. 
I think like you think yeah, I love it. It's really expensive to live here now. No, but underrated. Like I think like people don't like even within the city. Like there just isn't enough love for the potential that we have mm-hmm. at all levels. I think at a municipal level, at a governmental level, there isn't um, enough appreciation for the potential that Toronto has to be a really vibrant arts and music and mm-hmm. design city to be really livable, to be really amazing to live in. I don't think that there's enough appreciation and understanding and foresight in order to foster Toronto into the city that it could be. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think the city's underrated. I think that there's so many amazing people, specifically like POC and queer people, that are doing amazing things in this city, like amazing things in all areas, all industries. But I think like at a higher level, the resources aren't really funneled to those areas and to those people. And so it's really stifling itself, Toronto Mm -hmm. suffocating itself from becoming an international like city, you know, the way that New York or London is an international city. Like Toronto could be that, but the people leading the development of the city Mm -hmm. physically and otherwise are not, are not doing it with that in mind. What's your ultimate favorite film? My favorite film? Um, no, I don't actually watch that many films. The so. book, then. Book. Oh. Um, okay, okay, so there's two. So there's one from my childhood, and then there's one from my adulthood. So for my childhood, there's a book called The Phantom Tollbooth, and it's this really nerdy book about a kid named Milo who goes on an adventure. The book is full of a plays on words. There's, like, weird alliterations. There's weird jokes about etymology. There's word weird jokes about, like, just playing with the meaning of words and like innuendos and like it's just a really nerdy book that's about words um and i've read that book so many fucking times so that's from my childhood the phantom toll booth i suggest everyone read it i'll give you a renewed appreciation for words and then from my adulthood most recently i read a book called too much and not the mood by Durga chubos mm-hmm. and i am in love with that book that is one of the books that it, while it not being fiction, it's not quite nonfiction either. It's more of like a compilation of personal essays. And that book to me taught me so much and taught me that you can learn emotional knowledge. You can really absorb that from a novel. Like I think I was using books for just like really factual stuff, like mainly reading about like race and about urban planning and about gender. Through reading her book, I was like, oh, emotional growth, emotional knowledge. The book is really about, like, her interior life. That's how I've described it. It's just about, like, small moments in your life that aren't notable to tell anyone else. So it kind of feels like you're reading a bunch of her, like, secrets or, like, a bunch Mm -hmm. of her just, like, inner kind of monologues. Oh, nice. And it's super beautiful. I've read that book so many times that I just open it up to whatever page now and I just start reading. reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. What are you seeking? Currently seeking? Uh, A lot of different things. Seeking, like, a partner of some kind, that would be nice. Um, Seeking, really knowing myself. Really? Going from the most superficial to the least superficial, I want someone to sleep with, and then knowing myself. Yeah. Well. Because I think that's a continuous journey. I think that's, like, the purpose of life. Right. Yeah, I think that's kind of, like, an endless journey. It's, like, it's like a practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, every single day, just trying to, like, really be in yourself and not do things for other people that are pulling you away from your values and not act based on your ego. Yeah, I think that's endless. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was Thank so you. much fun. Thank you so much.
Really hope you enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did, and even learned something new when I was editing this episode. Please tell all your friends about us. Leave us a comment or review on Apple Podcast, so more women can find us and hear great stories like Sid's. As always, we are also available on Spotify and Instagram, so meet us there if you like. If you have something to share, thoughts, questions, record with your phone and send MP3 or WAV file to hey at dearsecrets.com, so I can include that in the next episode. And please make sure to head to dearsecrets.com to check out all the images taken by my friend Vayu at Sid's home. So see you in two weeks. Until next time, happy seeking. 